Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. In 1959, the city of St. Louis began raising more than 5,500 housing units across 465 acres in the downtown west slash midtown area of the city. Numerous businesses were also destroyed. The efforts were part of the city's efforts to redevelop the African-American neighborhood known as Mill Creek Valley. It was the city's largest urban renewal project, or as the Post-Dispatch called it at the time, slum clear. But what the newspaper called a slum was for Vivian Gibson and her seven siblings home. The eight Ross children and their parents shared 800 square feet on the first floor of their grandmother's home. It was, quote, filled mostly with beds, as Gibson writes. Those years are the subject of Vivian Gibson's perceptive new memoir, The Last Children of Mill Creek. And joining us today to talk about this book and her remarkable second act as a writer is Vivian Gibson. Vivian, welcome to the show. Thank you. So your book, um, it tells the story of your childhood in Mill Creek, but really it also tells the story of your parents. Your father was the first to move to St. Louis. What brought him and his family here? Well, he lived in a rural part of Arkansas, and there was no high school for black children there. So he he, uh, came to St. Louis to go to high school at about age 14. And uh, about a year before, they had just built Vashon High School, for the children in Mill Creek. Hmm. And this is where he met your mother. Uh, you write that your parents' marriage cut across class lines. Your mom came from a little bit fancier stock. What, what was her background? <laughs> well, my mother grew up in Alabama. Uh, her father was the uh, proprietor of the uh, colored store. He was a farmer. He was fairly well off. Uh, his daughters all went to college. His children, his sons all were businessmen. And um, she somehow found herself in St. Louis while uh, on vacation from college visiting a cousin. Hmm. And so she ended up falling for this guy. He's a little bit beneath her social class, uh, maybe a lot beneath her social class. Do you think she resented this, this fall in status? I never, ever got that indication. As a matter of fact, Part of the remarkable part of this um, book was realizing my parents, Hmm. you know, thinking about what must have been going on in their minds or what might have been going on, but they never talked about it. But I certainly never got an indication that my mother thought that my father was beneath her. Hmm. So tell me about their life in Mill Creek. Now, this area, it basically ran from St. Louis University to Union Station. And the way you describe this, it's it's almost just shocking for those of us familiar with that area today, that is just so many vacant lots, not much going on there. This was a really thriving community, even though it, it wasn't wealthy. There were a lot of people living here. Absolutely. It was a thriving community. It was a segregated community. And within that community was uh, a strata of, of uh, society and, our, and, and a culture. We have doctors, our teachers and our doctors and our lawyers, our pastors, all of the churches, all of our schools, all of the stores were in that little enclave. And so you did have very, very poor people like us, and you had uh, other people who were college-educated, professors, well, high school professors. (laughs) Uh, Most of our high school teachers were probably a lot better educated than uh, most high school teachers today because they 
were so left out of uh, other positions that they could probably have had. Hmm. So certain avenues were closed to them. They ended up teaching at, at the black high school because they were well-educated black people. Yeah, so the children benefited from that, that's for sure. Now, you wrote that in Mill Creek, every aspect of life was labor-intensive and time-consuming. This is a, a quote from your book. <laughs> we boiled water to wash dishes, clothes, and our bodies. We built fires to heat the house, and we walked everywhere we wanted to go. On the rare occasion we rode a streetcar, it was never just a straight trip. We always transferred at least once, maybe twice to get to our destination. This was, I mean, this was a pretty hard life, even though you describe it with, with some, uh, you know, it had these, these wonderful, lovely moments. You guys were really working hard. We were working hard, but, but it was all we knew. And a lot of these people came from the rural South, so they were used to working hard. And to be able to get on a streetcar or not have to get off the sidewalk well, white people was a step up for them. And so working hard was, was what we did and what we knew. I was very surprised when I got to the part of the book where you mentioned your friend Janice, and she lived just across Jefferson. And, and your sister Beverly explained to you, she said, Janice is poor, and the people who live down the hill live in shacks, and their toilets are outside. Now, this was in the mid-1950s. I saw a story yeah. in the Post-Dispatch that said 80% of the houses in Mill Creek didn't have interior bathrooms. Does that sound right to you? No, I don't think so. I think that was part of the propaganda to mm. get people to vote to uh, and persuade people that this was truly a slum that did not deserve to exist. But a good number of people did. Mm. And most of those people were uh, renters and, and slumlords who didn't put in the indoor plumbing. We happened to have indoor plumbing, but the houses we lived in were over 100 years old. Hmm. And so the plumbing was pretty much jerry-rigged. It was under stairs and in the corner and and that sort of, of, of a hall. So the, this was the oldest architecture and oldest part of the city. And so it was... Um, an interesting place. I was going to say, looking at some of the pictures of this old neighborhood, it looked maybe a bit like uh, the non-fancy parts of Soulard or Benton Park. These were some homes that today you could see people just snapping up if they were into gentrification. But Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the exact same housing hmm. stock. Exactly the same. And because the city decided they wanted this particular land back... It, a lot of effort went into making sure that uh, people thought it deserved being demolished. Hmm. So you mentioned that propaganda that you feel like the Post-Dispatch fell for a little bit with that statistic I just read. Do you think the Post-Dispatch was right to call this the slums? Is that accurate? I think it was accurate, accurate and to the extent that the powers that be did everything to make sure that the, the community did not thrived, did not get the services it mm -hmm. needed to be a, a better place for people to live. Mm -hmm. And yet, with your parents, I mean, your father was working so hard. It seemed like, as you described this, he was so seldom home. You guys lived a little bit of, in fear of him because he was this presence where he was just always out there working. Always out there working. And when he came home, he wanted to eat 
and he wanted quiet. (laughs) (laughs) So, because he knew, we knew as well that there were were only a few hours before he had to get up and go to work again. Hmm. Now, now you write very frankly in this book um, about the physical abuse that your father inflicted on both you and your siblings. I'm wondering today, looking back on that, do you think of it as abuse, or or would you say that term is, is maybe not accurate? I I don't think of it as abuse. It was part of a culture uh, that um, doesn't exist very much anymore. It was that corporal punishment. We never thought of it as abuse because Hmm. it was, again, one of those situations where it was all we knew. Parents felt like they had so little control over every other aspect of life and there was so much to fear outside of our enclave hmm. that they really felt that there had to be a strictness within the home. You write at one point, after your father gave a beating to your sister and your sister who you loved so much, um, that you hated him so much that you got a butcher knife and you slept with it under your pillow, just sort of planning that, that you would do something terrible here. It sounds like you moved way past that. Um, was that something that happened to you fairly early in life, that you were able to, to look at that in a different way? Yeah, it happened early, and frankly, um, it was probably something I saw on TV, I put the knife under my pillow, went to sleep, and didn't wake up till the morning. <laughs> now, we're talking today to author Vivian Gibson, and her new book is The Last Children of Mill Creek. We actually just heard from Matt on Twitter, who writes, I grew up on a farm in Indiana in the 1970s and 80s. I just finished Vivian Gibson's book yesterday. It was a life unfamiliar to me, and I enjoyed her story. So that's some, some positive feedback. In addition to my rave for this book, I do really want to recommend this. And um, you mentioned in the afterword to your book that many of your siblings weighed in on your draft as you were working on this. Was there ever pressure from them to leave out some of these details that maybe weren't flattering or things that, you know, just dirty laundry that you had to get into as, as telling the truth of your experience? No, I never heard that. But I, I did bounce things off of them often. And sometimes they're memory of of what occurred was slightly different Hmm. um they're all older than me uh and your memories are your memories and they're they're filtered through your experiences but no one ever told me don't however i did worry myself not that anyone said anything i worried about well should i say this should i mean does this really contribute Mm -hmm. to the story so that happened, but not so much from my siblings. You found yourself holding back maybe yeah. at, at some points. Did you ultimately go for it um, and include those details, or are there some things where you decided, you know what, this is too personal? Uh, some things were too personal, <laughs> and some things I did decide they really were important to move the story along and to to give an accurate picture. Hmm. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how this book came to be, because that is also a really remarkable story. The fact that this is your first book and you're 71. I understand you first went to a creative writing workshop for seniors, um, and that was five years ago when you were 66 years old. What made you decide to do that? Well, it wasn't the uh, traditional path for sure. I wasn't out there uh, promoting uh, a, a book or, or a book proposal. It started off as, frankly, a house 
keeping. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) When I retired, I said, the first thing I'm going to do is clean out my desk and my closet in my second bedroom that also served as an office. And as I was going through all the papers, I found all of these books and spiral notebooks and yellow pads and envelopes and napkins with all kinds of stories and phrases and paragraphs that I'd been writing over the years and decided that I would try to compile them Hmm. in some way. So I read about um, a uh, writing workshop at Oasis in Clayton, which is a uh, a, um, agency that does um, senior citizen kinds of activities. Mm -hmm. So I... um, Decided to go mainly because it said no writing experience necessary. (laughs) So so a writing workshop turned out to be the most fun I have had in so long. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was frightening at first to, to write and have people read and critique. And the worst part was that you couldn't speak. As after they read your, your pieces, they critiqued it, and you couldn't defend it. Oh, wow. You had to just sit there and take it. You had to listen, because if, they, if something wasn't clear to them, if I was writing it, I had to, you know, understand that I had to make it clear for readers. Mm-hmm. So after being a frightening experience, it was just an exhilarating experience for me, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. The uh, woman, Kim Lozano who uh, led the workshop, kept saying to me, Vivian, these are really good stories. Hmm. I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> and she said, no, I think you should submit some of these stories to literary magazines. I went, oh, no, no, no. So that went on, and finally I submitted something that was accepted and published. Mm-hmm. And then I submitted something else that was accepted. And the second one was an anthology, a St. Louis anthology. Mm-hmm. And the person who was editing the anthology sent my stories to his publisher in Ohio, Hmm. who contacted me and said, my stories were gorgeous. I went, "Uh, okay, thank you. (laughs) I mean, that's such a compliment. I feel like most writers would hear that and they'd be like, great, I'm ready for my five book deal. I know, I know. I was the last one on board. (laughs) I mean, there was a line of people telling me, you're a writer, you're a writer. As a matter of fact, when I would introduce myself to a new group in the workshop, I would always say, I'm not a writer. And Kim would say, stop saying that. (laughs) (laughs) So you had to be talked into this. When you heard from this publisher, this is Belt Publishing in in Cleveland, they said, this is gorgeous. Um, At that point, were you sold on the idea of, you know what, I I should turn this into a memoir? No, no, because I, they were just stories. And part of, and they were like disjointed stories. They were just little, little things. So in in the workshop, there's a word limit because, you know, there's maybe 12 people in a class. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't write anything over 500 words. So I really learned to hone my writing into a a story with a beginning, middle, and end in 500 words, which really helps you learn how to choose the right words. Mm. And, and, And I became a fan of that. So I had all of these little five, six, seven hundred, maybe a thousand word pieces that I just wanted to publish as they were. 
And the publisher said, oh, well, she didn't say no, but she didn't say yes. Well, it turns out the answer was no. We had to measure, we had to weave them together. So it was an interesting process hmm. that, that happened remotely. Hmm. So you had to learn how to write so concisely, and then you took these, these uh, things that were written concisely, and you learned how to sort of add the embroidery that, that stitched them together. Absolutely, absolutely. And the thing is that it was all via email. Hmm. It wasn't even telephone. I had the, we had maybe three phone calls, and they were all at my ex- insistence. It's like email, 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 send me this, da, 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 do this. So when I sent all the stories in, one interesting thing that, that was said was, these are really good, but it's not a book yet. Hmm. You need an introduction so the people know more about Mill Creek and, and, and the location, and you need a conclusion. So that was part of the, a new part of the writing process. Mm-hmm. So um, what you read in the middle is, are the short stories that I weave together, mm-hmm. and the uh, introduction and conclusion came later, and the introduction came after the conclusion. That's interesting. So you didn't write this at all in, in chronological order or in book order, no, but it, no. it, it really reads so seamlessly. And I, I think the thing that I find myself thinking about as I look back on, on my experience with this, this wonderful book is I think about this part of town today, uh, this, this Mill Creek and, and how empty it is and how they cleared out this thriving community and now there's, there's just so little there. And I, I'm wondering, you live so close to there yourself, living sort of in downtown St. Louis. Did you find yourself going back? back to visit these old spots as, as you were putting this all together? I, I did, and I do, but there's not very much. The only thing that's here from when I was a chi- uh, child is Union Station, mm. Vashon High School, which is now part of uh, Harris-Stowe State University, mm-hmm. and there were two other buildings. One is a church. There were more than 40 churches mm. in Mill Creek, and there was a committee of architects from Washington University School of Architecture that decided which one of those 40 churches would remain. Oh, they just picked one. Everything they else knocked one, down. And now that church is here, but nobody even knows it, because if you go to Pappy's Barbecue, hmm. just to the east of it, and behind a dormitory at Harris-Stowe State University, there's a stone building that now belongs to St. Louis University. And it was Berea Church, which was a, a foundation and a hub of the Mill Creek community where James Weldon Johnson and Langston Hughes and W.E.B. Du Bois would come to the community and talk, and they'd have meetings there. So now this little church is there sits back, and you look at the rear of what was the church. You don't even see the front of it. The front of it is surrounded with dumpsters from the uh, (laughs) dormitory. And it's very, very sad, but still a beautiful church. Boy, I mean, after reading your book and thinking about what all happened on this this ground, it just it leaves me with such a sense of loss. And that's not ever having seen it or lived through it. I just I imagine for you, it, it, it must feel like just something profound, knowing what was there, that it's now gone. 
That was part of my motivation. If I had not read anything about this community, and I had thought not a lot about it when I started doing the research for myself, beyond my memories, I wanted to be sure that I had places and dates and people correctly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I really was struck by the fact that there was nothing there, that none of the primary source mm-hmm. would be available to anybody if I didn't write this book. I had not re- written or read anything about it. The funny thing that happened once I stopped at a light at the intersection of Market Street and Jefferson one day. I lived mm-hmm. just a block from there, and a lot of my life took place there. I went to school there, and nobody really knows that yeah. we were there, that 20,000 people lived here. So I thought it was important to write about it. Vivian Gibson is the author of The Last Children of Mill Creek. It's out from Belt Publishing, and I talked to her in April upon the book's release. You can read more about it on her website. That's vivian-gibson.com. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org. Or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hemphill and Lara Hampton with production assistance from Aaron Doerr. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury, and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.